It's day 40 of Heart Dive 365. I'm your Bible study friend, Kanoi. Welcome to the Heart Dive Podcast. Well, today we're in Exodus chapters 30 through 32, where we come across one of the more well-known incidents in the Old Testament, which is the creation of the golden calf. Today, we are reading from the ESV translation by Crossway. And if you could please help us out by giving this video a thumbs up if you are a part of the Heart Dive family. And if you're new here, we just say welcome. We're so glad that you're here. Please let us know where you are in the world, where you're watching from. This is a worldwide ministry, so it's always exciting to see if there's new places that kind of pop up on the map. But let's not waste any time and jump into the word. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for the breath in our lungs. Thank you for the ability to be able to worship freely, to have the opportunity to have our hands be able to get onto your word and our eyes and our ears to be able to see and to hear your voice through it. And so I pray that that's exactly what will happen today as we get to know you a little bit more today. Lord, I pray that you will reveal the layers. Will you pull back some of the things that maybe were covered before and help us to be able to see that. But I pray, Holy Spirit, that you will minister to our hearts individually. You know exactly what each one of us needs. And so I pray that your word will fulfill that today. I pray that it washes us today, God, and forgive us of our sins. We know, Lord, that it is by the blood of Jesus that we are not only forgiven, but also saved. And that is a beautiful gift of grace that you have given to us. And I just pray that we never take that for granted. And also, Lord, help us to forgive others, because if you're going to dole out forgiveness, to us. We also need to be able to be that example, to be the Jesus that a lot of people may not ever see in their lifetime. So we thank you for that honor and this opportunity. We love you so much and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So starting off here in chapter 30, you shall make an altar on which to burn incense. You shall make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length and a cubit its breadth. And remember, a cubit is about 18 inches and it shall be square and two cubits shall be its height and its horns shall be of one piece with it. So horns, remember, speak of power or strength, but this is going to be more like a decorative replica of the altar itself. You shall overlay it with pure gold, its top and around its sides and its horns. And you shall make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make two golden rings for it. Under its molding on two opposite sides of it, you shall make them. And they shall be holders for poles with which to carry it. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put it in front of the veil that is above the Ark of the Testimony in front of the mercy seat that is above the testimony where I will meet with you. Now, if we're going to relate the altar of incense to something spiritually, incense typically in the Bible speaks of prayer. And one of the hardest things in the spiritual life to do a lot of the times is to pray. You know, so many people struggle with it and it makes sense. I mean, Satan doesn't want us to pray. So he's going to do everything he can to distract you or make you think that your prayers aren't good enough, or he's going to sing lullabies in your ear whenever you lay your head down on your pillow so that you'll fall asleep before you finish. Because he knows that this is the place where God meets you. It is in prayer where his power is unleashed. And because we know this, we want so badly to have a prolific prayer life. But God is like, I just want to talk to you guys. And as wonderful as it is to be able to pray the word or to feel confident about publicly praying, that really shouldn't be our goal. You know, our goal should be to simply talk to God. And it isn't even always audible. Our spirit can even pray for us. Because my personal prayers, they don't always sound like the ones that we pray at the end of Bible study. And it's because my meeting with God is way more personal. 
Sometimes I'll just sit there in silence before him and let my spirit lead my heart and mind. You see, it'll never be the length or the intellect of your prayers that will matter, but it's going to be the strength and the genuineness of it that does. So heart check. Are you thinking too hard about what prayer looks like? Or are you simply talking to Jesus? Verse 7, And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. Every morning when he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight. So this burning of the incense is restricted to those who can approach God, which right now is Aaron and his sons as the priests. And it will do so twice a day, once in the morning, once at twilight. And twilight at this time would have been the period of time where you couldn't tell the difference between a black string and a white string or a thread. So remember, they don't have the street lights. They don't have lamps or electricity. So it's typically whenever it's dark, dark enough that you can't tell the difference between black and white. And he shall burn it, a regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer unauthorized incense on it or a burnt offering or a grain offering, and you shall not pour a drink offering on it. So this was purely for incense only, nothing else. And unauthorized is also translated to strange or common. So again, no animals on here. And this can be symbolic of the same way that our prayers are not going to be the thing that is going to save us. It is the sacrifice of Jesus that saved us. And so in this time, it was this sacrifice that was able to atone for their sins. And this would have been simply incense or the prayer that is offered up. And remember this whole unauthorized thing, because we are going to see an incident that takes place with Aaron's sons. So Aaron shall make atonement on its horns, which again, this represents power once a year. With the blood of the sin offering of atonement, he shall make atonement for it once in the year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. So remember, we're just saying that you can't put any sacrifices on here, but this is simply the blood of the sacrifice that would be placed on the horns to wash this holy item once a year. Verse 11, the Lord said to Moses, when you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life. So a ransom would simply be a payment that is related to sin. So it would be more like an atonement payment for one's life. And he shall pay this ransom for this life to the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this, a half a shekel, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 giras, half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. So 20 years old would have been considered an adult and so God is making a provision for a census to be taken. Later on, there will be two of them that he commands. And of course, David is going to conduct a census that is unholy, that was not commanded by God. And that is what will end up bringing a plague upon the people. But when God calls for a census, there is no plague involved. So numbering, the whole purpose of it is that it signifies ownership. And that's why people can't go out and start numbering their people the way David did, because he was doing it in order to show his military might. But God God is simply doing it and saying, these are my people. This is how many people we've got in our family. And so if they were to go out and do that on their own, they are in a sense claiming ownership over the people, which is acting out of pride. So it acknowledges God as governor, as creator, and as owner. The rich shall not give more and the poor shall not give less than the half shekel when you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives. So this would not be a payment that is made according to how much you make. So it's not a sort of tax bracket or anything like that. Every single adult would have to pay this. 
And I forget what a half a shekel would equate to today. I want to say it was something like $20 or something. So it's not a really significant amount that would have affected the people, but it was enough for them to know, hey, you know what? God is my creator. He is my governor. I belong to him. And so here is my atonement payment. And you shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel. You shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord so as to make atonement for your lives. So this would have been the provision for both the building of the tabernacle and possibly the provision for the Levites. And later on, we will see that the census tax actually turns into the temple tax. Then the Lord said to Moses, you shall make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it with which Aaron and his son shall wash their hands and their feet. When they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. And it shall be a statute forever for them, even to him and to his offspring throughout their generations. So this would have been symbolic for their need for a regular cleansing to be holy before the Lord. It was a purification ritual, but it was also very practical. I mean, if they're over there offering these bloody sacrifices, it would make sense that God would provide a place for them to clean up before he comes into the tabernacle. And the way that we wash ourselves, obviously, is through the word. Then the Lord said to Moses, take the finest spices of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels, and of sweet-smelling cinnamon, half as much, that is 250 and 250 of aromatic cane, and 500 of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hin of olive oil. And you shall make of these a sacred anointing oil, blended as by the perfumer. So this perfumer would have been one of the highly skilled artisans that God is in empowering to be able to create some of these things. And typically anointing oil in the Bible is reserved only for prophets, priests, and kings. So you'll see that throughout. It shall be a holy anointing oil. With it, you shall anoint the tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony and the table and all its utensils and the lampstand and its utensils and the altar of incense and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils and the basin and its stand. So basically anything involved in holy worship would need to be anointed. You shall consecrate them that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them will become holy. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. And you shall say to the people of Israel, this shall be my holy anointing oil throughout your generations. It shall not be poured on the body of an ordinary person and you shall make no other like it in composition. It is holy and it shall be holy to you. Whoever compounds any like it or whoever puts any of it on it outsider shall be cut off from his people, aka put to death. And the Lord said to Moses, take sweet spices, stacti and onica and galbanum, sweet spices with pure frankincense of each shall there be an equal part. Now these were very valuable spices back then and make an incense blended as by the perfumer seasoned with salt, pure and holy. You shall beat some of it very small and put part of it before the testimony in the tent of meeting where I shall meet with you. It shall be most holy for you and the incense that you shall make according to its composition, you shall not make for yourselves. It shall be for you holy to the Lord. Whoever makes any like it to use as perfume shall be cut off from his people. 
So here we see that both the anointing oil and the incense were declared holy and to be used only for holy purposes. And it was a sweet fragrance that was never to touch anything unholy, including the flesh of ordinary persons. It was only to be used for the heavenly items and the priests in the tabernacle. It was not to be imitated. And if it was, their lives would be ended. It's the same way that one of the fastest ways to kill a ministry is to try to imitate someone else's anointing or calling. Because remember, we have been individually and uniquely called and anointed for a specific purpose. So it would be like putting on like a perfume dupe only for it to then sour on your skin or knowing that something might be a little bit off about it because it just isn't the original. But you are an original. The sweetest of perfumers, the Holy Spirit has uniquely crafted a fragrance for you. So heart check, is your anointing a dupe or are you wearing your holy fragrance? Chapter 31, then the Lord said to Moses, see, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I filled him with the spirit of God, with the ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood to work in every craft. So here we went from the priestly ministry to now the practical ministry. And both then and now, the practical ministry is just as important as the priestly one. And sometimes we neglect the ability to be empowered in our own jobs, not realizing that it is work that can be done as unto the Lord. You know, one of my favorite verses is 1 Corinthians 10, 13, which says, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. And I tell myself that all day, folding laundry for your glory, Lord or filming a YouTube video for the glory of God, being kind to people at the grocery store for the glory of God. And here God empowered and he gave vigor to carpenters, to seamstresses and to perfumers. And this tells me that whatever job you are currently in, it can be anointed by God. We don't have to be Moseses and Aaron's. So heart check. Have you asked God to anoint what you do practically? Come say hi. Everybody say hi to Luna. We are dog sitting. Sorry. This is real life. We get distracted in the middle of things. Okay. Okay. You need to lay down. Go lay down. So if you hear bells, that's what it is. Verse six, and behold, I have appointed with him Oholiab, the son of Ahissamach of the tribe of Dan. And I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you. Now, I like Oholiab. I feel like he's my kind of guy. I mean, he is the first runner up to Miss America, the co-host of the TV show. He's in someone's shadow. He is second in command. You see, the world makes us think that we need to win the crown in order to be significant or win the race to get the prize. And we tend to think that if we don't get there, we've somehow failed. But this guy, Oholiab, He reminds me that every single position is appointed and anointed by God. And so we must be able to treat whatever place we end up in as if it is first place. If we have to play second fiddle, we got to play our part right and play it well, or else we're going to throw off the entire orchestra. Or if we overstep our boundary and try to outshine the first fiddle player, we're probably going to get kicked out. You know, whenever I didn't win Miss America, I mean, I was honestly relieved. And I told myself, I'm going to be the best Miss Hawaii I can be. And that was my place. And I knew it. 
How sad would that have been if I had a heart of bitterness and decided to just die off in my own pity? So I live my life by that motto, play second fiddle and play it well. We've got to honor the position that we are in because the truth is there's always someone who is better than you at whatever you're doing. And that's a good thing because you have someone to inspire you. And then there's also someone who is worse than you in whatever you're doing. They're sitting in the third chair, but you can be an inspiration for them. So heart check, how well are you shining in the position that God has placed you in? In verse 7, we start off by all of the things that they are commanded to build, including the tent of meeting, the ark of the testimony, the mercy seat that is on it, and all the furnishings of the tent, the table and its utensils, the pure lampstand with all its utensils, and the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offerings with all of its utensils, and the basin and its stand, and the finely worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron the priest and the garments of his sons for their service as priests, and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense for the holy place. According to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. And verse 12, Then the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations. So notice that he calls it my Sabbath, not even the Sabbath day. And this is because the Sabbath is not man-made. It is God's holy day. This is why he is so insistent on maintaining its holiness, because he knows how good it is for his people. It was not a day to be spent out in recreation it was intended to rest and to worship. Now, there would be some fellowship also within that, but this wasn't a vacation day. Now, some people would say, man, this seems a little bit out of place, this talk about the Sabbath, but not at all, because notice the chapter began with work, 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 work. So, of course, anytime you're talking about work, 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 one, two, three, four, five. Okay, no, I was thinking, oh, that'd be really cool if that was six, and then seven would be the Sabbath, but that didn't work out anyway. But God is speaking about work and he's saying, hey, you know what? You're going to do all of these amazing things, but don't forget about me. Don't forget that you need to rest. Don't forget that you need to stop and worship. So he's saying, I need you to remember it that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. I set you apart is what he's saying. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. So this is a gravely command that he is giving to them. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from the people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout the generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. So there we see the benefit of honoring the Sabbath day. And like I say all the time, you know, pastors and ministers are some of the first people that we will see burning out in their jobs. And it is because in this desire to honor God with everything that they do, sometimes their work ends up outclassing who they're working for. They put more importance on the ministry itself than on their worship to God, or they're making their work for Jesus more important than what Jesus did for them. So we can actually dim the light of God whenever we put our ministry or our work 
before him. We become like the moon that's just in the right place or the wrong place, technically, if we're speaking spiritually, that creates that eclipse onto the earth. And we don't ever want to do that. We don't ever want to dim the light of God. And he gave Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. And the finger of God is what is known as an anthropomorphism, which is a quality of God that is explained in human terms. Now, being written by the finger of God means that God divinely wrote the Ten Commandments on the stone that he gave to Moses. So it wasn't something that was crafted by human hands. And why written in stone? Because it is a permanent thing to last throughout the generations. Chapter 32. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Well, that didn't take long, did it? 40 days and the people are losing their minds and they're losing hope because they've placed their hope in the wrong thing. Because faith is the hope in the things unseen. It says here that the people saw that Moses delayed to come down. And not only are they putting their hope in the wrong place, but also up against their own expectation and according to their ETA or their own timing. But then there's a third mistake. They gathered together to make a formal complaint. Kind of like, you know, those videos that go viral and suddenly everyone is boycotting certain companies because it's swaying the masses. So with each step into sin, they are walking further away from God and their faith in Him, and they're putting it into another leader and a false image, which will ultimately break the first three commandments. They are going to bow down before another God. They are going to create an image, and they are going to use God's name in vain. And so they grew so impatient that they they failed to handle this delay well. And delays are a wonderful measure for spiritual maturity. So heart check, how do you handle a delay? Do you try to force it to happen? Or do you remain faithful and steadfast, trusting in the Lord's timing? So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. I'm like, oh, Aaron, what is going on? So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And I just can't even wrap my mind around why they think this, but okay, verse five. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. Oh my goodness, it's just getting worse. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. So here we're using God's name in vain. Remember when I was asking, what would it mean to use his name in vain in worship? Well, here would be one of those places. And they rose up early the next day and offered a burnt offering and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. I just thought, man, Aaron, what is going on? Like, is he drunk with power? Is he just simply fearful of the masses? And so he's just doing this to appease them. Is he simply fed up with their complaints and is like, here, just take it all. I don't care anymore. I don't know. I don't know what the reason is. I think it is leaning on the fear of man. We'll find out. But here we see a fine example of how the will of the people or the popular vote is not always the will of God or the desire of God. And it's pretty incredible to me that they are so easily willing to worship something that didn't even exist the day before, and they're claiming it as if it is God. But we have a tendency to do that too sometimes. 
And this is where we're seeing kind of the polluting or the diluting of the faith because they're mixing holy with unholy things. And that is where the enemy works best. He will infiltrate himself into the holiness, into the church, and it will all start to mix together and kind of blur together and it will seem right and okay, I'll like maybe this is God's will. And meanwhile, the whole purpose is to try to take it down, to destroy the church. And the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves or AKA perverted or ruined their holiness. And this is the same word that was used whenever God was provoked to bring the flood upon the people. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshiped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff necked people. Now, this is the first mention of a stiff necked people in the Bible. And what does that mean? Well, whenever you think about an animal and the way that it would be yoked up, initially when it is untrained, it is going to stiffen its neck and try to pull back and it's going to try to buck against the owner or it's going to try to pull against the lead animal. That is what it means. It is being stubborn. Verse 10, now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation out of you. So I'm like, whoa, Moses could have been the new Abraham here. Verse 11, but Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? So here we see Moses interceding on behalf of the people, very similar to the way Abraham did. And he is appealing here to God's deliverance. Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? So here appealing to God's justice and his reputation, turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever." also appealing to God's promise and his grace, just the same way that Abraham did. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing upon his people. So that is an example of a strong prayer. It's not full of intellect. It's not full of a bunch of scripture. It's not even long. It's short to the point and it is genuine. And the fact that God relented shows that he heard that prayer and that it meant something to his heart. And it's a fair question to ask, wait a minute, so did God change his mind? What I believe happened is that Moses carried out his already existing plan. And as he did, Moses' heart was being molded into the likeness of him. He was growing more compassion for his people. He was showing more humility. He was proving his zeal for God. And he was more worried about the reputation and the honor of God than anything else. Verse 15, then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony, the Ten Commandments, in his hand. The tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. Now, of course, this would have been a spiritual war, but he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the the sound of singing that I hear. 
And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses's anger burned hot and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. Now his anger was righteous. Him breaking the tablets, I was like, is that going a little bit beyond and maybe sinning in his anger? Well, this is symbolic of the fact that the law has been broken. So, and we're going to see God in his grace replace the two tablets for Moses. So I believe that this action may have been justified. What are your thoughts? Let me know. Now he took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. Why did he have them drink it? Well, this would symbolize the fact that it is completely destroyed. They are not going to be able to dig up the gold once again and reuse it because it will be mixed now with their waste. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Now, all of that is true, but Aaron's not quite taking responsibility here for his part that he played in it. So I said to them, let anyone who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. So he's like, I don't know. It kind of just happened. I didn't mean to. So he's passing the buck, much like Adam did. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, so basically they're still doing what they want, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. So Levi, they're the only tribe that came forth and said, you know what? We're on God's side. And he said to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel, put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day, about 3,000 men of the people fell. So interestingly enough, the law came down from the mountain and 3,000 people died. We will see in Acts chapter two, when the spirit comes down upon the people and 3,000 are saved. And Moses said, today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. So the Levites are now taking the place of what God intended for the firstborn sons to be as priests. Now, the next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. So Moses is willing to lay his life down for the people, very similar to the way that Jesus was so willing to die for us. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. So in the end, the whole problem stemmed from faulty expectations of God and Moses. And it resulted in the people molding God into what they wanted him to be and do for them. And we can do this too. I mean, we will take God and we'll cut a little bit here, cut a little bit there so that he can then fit into our box of expectations 
expectation and desires. And in doing so, we place ourselves above Him in self-worship, yet we fail to see it for what it is. So heart check. Are you molding your own image of God to meet your expectations in your life? But even after all of that, God still poured out His mercy and His forgiveness where they deserved His wrath and His judgment. So let's take a look at some of our deep dive questions. Is the daily ritual of burning incense or a spiritual routine evident in your life? Why is the violation of the Sabbath deserving of such a grave consequence in this day? Why do you think Aaron decided to form the golden calf? And if God kept His word on destroying the people, would that have affected the covenant? Was Moses' rage righteous? What about his actions of breaking the tablets? How do Moses and Aaron's leadership differ? And what can we learn from each of them? So we thank you, Lord, for your steadfast love and your forgiveness and your grace and mercy. Sometimes we fail to see how much of it you actually pour out into our lives because we have become so accustomed to receiving it. So forgive us, Lord, where we have done so. I pray that we are always aware of our shortcomings, and rather than allowing it to drive us deeper into sin, I pray that you will help us to see it for what it is, to call it out, and to make it right. I pray that we will never put you into our own box of expectation or try to mold you to meet our selfish desires. You're the potter, and we're the clay, so we yield our lives to mold us how you see fit. It is in your hands where we want our lives to always be, never seeking something better somewhere else, because we know that we will never find it. So help us to place our hope in the unseen, knowing that it is then that you will strengthen our faith. I pray that we'll never try to manipulate or force your will. And I pray for a special anointing today over every person, their jobs, their gifts, their hobbies, their skills, and the wisdom by which they will use them. I pray that you will help them see how they can do everything for your glory. This doesn't mean a drastic change of sudden religious jargon or self-righteousness, but simply being submitted to your will and committed to glorifying you in everything they do, whether work or deed. May our words be seasoned properly and may they be pleasant to the ears of those who hear. We want to be a beautiful fragrance as crafted by your Holy Spirit. Forgive us, Lord, where we have tried to imitate or make a cheap copy of an anointing that we never had. I pray that we will all be able to see the place that we are in as an honor. You have placed us here for a time such as this. So I pray that we will play our fiddle, no matter which chair we are sitting in, and play it well. Help us never to be swayed by the fear of man, but always living out our lives in fear of you. Thank you, Lord, for this time and being able to know you more. Help us to bolster up our prayer life, not in length or intellect, but in strength and sincerity. We love you so much. We honor you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Heaven and salvation is a divine gift that is given to us by grace. None of us deserve it. In fact, the Bible says that the wages of sin is death and every single one of us have fallen short. And then we desperately need someone to pay that price. And Jesus did it. He didn't do it because we are righteous on our own merit. He did it because He loves us and He wants to spend eternity with us. But it won't happen if we don't receive Him before we leave this earth as Lord and Savior. Hell is a very real thing and there is no second chance after we take our last breath here. So I want to be able to give someone the opportunity today who is saying, I'm ready. I've never given my life to Christ. 
I don't know where I'm going to end up after I die, but I don't want to live another day without knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt where I am going to end up. I see now that this is real and I want to believe. So if that is you, we're going to say a prayer and I'm going to put the words on the screen so that you can say them audibly with your mouth because the Bible says that when you believe and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and that he died and rose again, then you will be saved. So we're going to say this prayer together. Believe it in your heart, speak it with your mouth, and know that this is indeed the day of your salvation. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus. Jesus, thank you for dying for me. I believe that you came, you died, and you rose again. I confess my sins to you today, and I turn from them, and I now live my life for you. I know that I am forgiven of all my sins, so I receive you now as Lord and Savior, and I belong to you, Jesus. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.